It is great to be here. It's nice to see new faces, but also the old stalwarts. It's great to see all of you and great memories. This is our home away from home. I have incredible memories. All of them are fond memories of being a part of this ministry over the years. My wife and I ran the camp for a few years up in northern Minnesota, you betcha, and that's what got us up there. And uh, and and yet the Lord led us to plant a church up there, Bemidji Baptist Church. And it's really been amazing uh, this, this last year and a half or so. We're really seeing uh, people getting saved, uh, uh, new believers, um, also people getting fed up with the uh, the garbage that's being taught in these apostate churches. And they're looking for something of substance. And uh, they're watching us online through live stream. They like what they see, and then they come out. And uh, so that's been really neat, really, really neat. And uh, uh, it's really a blessing, too, to see more and more Native American folks up in our community uh, getting saved and now getting plugged into our church. That's really neat. So we're, we're right next to two uh, reservations there. And uh, you pray for them. Um, uh, there, it's, there's, Satan's just got such a hold. And it's, there's so much devastation on the reservations. A lot of alcoholism, a lot of substance abuse. Um, I, I praise God we have simple steps to help folks. You know, you know, we can bemoan things or we can say, okay, we see a problem. Let's, what can we do to bring, uh, the hope of the gospel to people? So, so that's what we've been doing. And, uh, we, we thank God for that. And, um, God is so good. So Joy did a great job with that piano. That's, that's beautiful. I love piano. My, my daughter Elizabeth is a graduate from here, music major, and now she runs our music ministry up by us. And she's, I love listening to the piano. One of my, that and the violin are some of my favorite instruments. So, um, I remember also in Bible college, we had so much fun in choir. Uh, Linda Scudder was our choir leader for the Bible college students and I still remember the songs, so many of them, from the cantatas that we did and stuff. Will I sing it? No. <laughs> On a hill far away, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I went to Bible college with Pastor John Fontana. We were best friends. And uh, one time we were um, going through college choir rehearsing, and once one song we were singing, it had a line in it, and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. And... We came up with this brilliant idea of sneaking in tree branches. And when we come to that point, we're going to pull them out and hit them together. But wisdom got the better part of us. And we decided, no, nah, I don't think Mrs. Scudder would like that a whole lot. So uh, anyway, anyway, we, we, we made our mistakes in Bible college. You know, we had zeal, but not according to knowledge. So anyway, but it is a delight to be here. And I mean it from all my heart. Um, I am the product of Dayspring. Um, I did not realize the value of the education I had until I went and, and planted the church in northern Minnesota. Since then, I've met a lot of pastors in our area. Some of them have gone to major Bible colleges that many of you would recognize. And they were clueless about the local church, about certain areas of doctrine, about Calvinism, these different things, that really showed me that the education I received through Dayspring was invaluable. And it serves me well. 
And it's going to serve these students well. I'm very confident of that. If they'll just take it to heart and live by it. Um, and as time goes on, they'll learn to treasure it because what's being taught is, is I'm not boasting. I'm just saying I'm grateful, very grateful for what is here. And today I was able to do the chapel for the, for day spring. It's so much fun to see all these students. So much fun. And all I could think of was Dr. Scudder. That was his vision, seeing it just grow and influence and impact for the gospel's sake. And did you see that? Oh, man. Uh, so Dr. Scudder was, uh, he was a great mentor and uh, a dear friend. And I, I look at him as uh, like a dad in the Lord. Um, I loved him very, very much and uh, miss him greatly. There's many times my wife and I say, don't you wish Dr. Scudder was still around? We just love to call him and talk to him. He had incredible wisdom. Absolutely amazing. Well, tonight, I'm going to talk about something maybe a little different. Um, not apostasy, but <laughs> I won't do that. But I want to talk about something that really struck me a while back, uh, really caused me to step back and just look at my own life. And... Uh, it, I was going through some reading, and I, I, I like to go down rabbit trails. And I started getting into uh, looking at the Pharisees, just to try to find out a little bit more about them. How do they even come to be? You know, what, what's their background and all of that? And I was kind of amazed. Um, and, and so I want to talk about the Pharisee in me and how we all have to be careful of having what I would call a Pharisee flare-up in our lives. Now, now, let me tell you where I'm coming from on this. I am not ever afraid of being called an advocate for abortion. That ain't going to happen. I, I don't worry about ever slipping into embracing communism. I'm very confident that will never happen. Um, I'm, I'm very confident I will not slip into religious liberalism. That, that's not going to happen, okay? I'm very confident of that. But there is one thing I do fear, and it is slipping into this legalistic mindset of what I call a, flare, a Pharisee flare-up. Because um, I know, because I've had it happen. And I, I, I want to learn from that, and I, I, I don't want to uh, slip into that, but it's, it can be a very easy thing to slip into this. So that's the one thing I'm afraid of being called as a Pharisee or a legalist. That's really the equivalent of a Pharisee. So when you call somebody a legalist, in essence, you're saying, well, you're, you're just a Pharisee, you know. Now, how many times when you hear the word, the name Pharisee, does that conjure up wonderful thoughts about people? It doesn't, does it? So when you hear the name Pharisee, what do you think about? Don't you think about people who are judgmental, critical? hypocrites, and you would be correct in that assessment, wouldn't you? Um, for example, if you look in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, again, I'm, I'm quite secure in knowing I'm never going to be a supporter of abortion on demand, evolution, be a religious liberal, but I don't have that same confidence when it comes to not having a Pharisee flare-up in my life. And uh, it's, it's repugnant, but it's, it's easy to slip into for Bible-believing Christians. I've, I've seen it. I've experienced it. 
So, but, but check this out. According to Jesus, in his own words, look how he describes him or what he says of them. Verse 13, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer or permit ye them that are entering to go in. So in other words, Jesus, he not only calls them hypocrites, but he points out that they're looking all over earth to get one convert, but all the person is converted to is an assurance of eternal damnation. Okay, look at, again, verse 13 of the same chapter, Matthew 23, verse 15. They were self-made doorkeepers to the kingdom of God who knew how to lock the doors but not to open them. Look, he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass the sea, that is, you look all over, you compass the, the land and the sea to make one proselyte, one convert, and when he is made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. These were not good people. They were religious. But this is what Jesus says of them. This isn't just a, a human being's assessment that can be flawed and biased. No, Jesus was dead on in, in, figuring, in, in knowing the character, the true character of people, because he knew the hearts of man. Look at verse 16 of this same chapter. <laughs> Look how Jesus describes him in this one. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. So the Pharisees were the strictest group among the Jews. They had three primary groups. There were some other factions as well. But the main ones were the, were the scribes, the Pharisees, and, and the Sadducees. So those are the three main groups that were around in Christ's time. And if you look in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, here's what the Apostle Paul said of himself. He says, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, of Judaism, Paul says, I lived a Pharisee. So it was well known back then that the Pharisees of, of these three main groups, they were the strictest. They were the legalists. They were the ones that, that were very emphatic about you got to keep the law of Moses. And they would go around making sure everybody was doing so. Okay. You today, you might call them fruit inspectors. They would be people who, um, they weren't looking at themselves, but they were masters at finding flaws in others, okay? That was the mentality of the Pharisee. Here's something else, uh, Matthew 23, verses six and seven. They, they were very proud. You know, that's what self-righteous religion, man-made religion produces, pride. Because think about it, folks. If you think that you're not that bad to where you need a savior, but that you can save yourself. You're not that bad that your, your good can outweigh your bad. That's a pretty arrogant view. Because what you're saying is that I'm not that bad. And the Bible says, yeah, you are. <laughs> you're a sinner. And the wages of your sin demands death. That's what a holy God requires because of sin. That's what his justice demands. And so the Pharisees, 
because they were self-righteous. How many of you, uh, have you ever met a self-righteous person? Aren't they wonderful to be around? They're just just a joy, aren't they, to be around, the self-righteous people? Uh, No, they're not fun to be around. They are, they are arrogant. I don't know about you. I, I just, I do not like arrogance. I just, there's something about it just really makes me sick, honestly. Um, but, but notice this. Verse 6 and 7, Matthew 23. Jesus said further of them, the, they, they love the uppermost rooms at feasts. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor. And greetings in the market, they like that. And to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. It just appealed to their egos. So, so far, this doesn't all seem very complimentary about the Pharisees, does it? These don't seem like the kind of guys you really want to model yourself after, right? They weren't examples of of what it means to be a, a Christ follower, all right? I mean, I, I think we would agree with that. But work with me on this. Don't freak out. There's some things about them that weren't all that bad. I don't know if you've ever taken the time. You probably never have. I'm just one of those weirdos that likes to look into history and stuff. I like to figure out, well, where'd these people come from? So I started doing a little research. And what I found out about the Pharisees is uh, they came onto the scene as a result of the Maccabean Revolt. This is around 160, 165 BC. It was in response to Antiochus Epiphanes, where he desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He desecrated it by offering a pig upon it. He put an, a, an idol in, into the temple and defiled it. And that's what led to a group of five priests. They were, they were a part of the, of the Maccabean revolt. They were a family. And they were priests. And they, this is what led to Hanukkah, by the way, which was just recently celebrated. And so it's a historical time. Um, this this uh, was a, a very important event in, in the Jewish system. And it is. It, it was... a. Uh, a response to the ungodliness that had come into Israel. And they said enough. And eventually they reclaimed uh, the temple. They conquered it. They took it away under Greek domination. They cleansed the temple and uh, they reinstituted worship. But here's the thing as well. They reasoned that our people have drifted so far away from God the solution is we got to get back to God's word. We got to get back to the law. We need to start living a holy life according to the, the law of God. Now, in some ways, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But the problem is, is they saw that by doing this, they could make themselves righteous by keeping the law. So, so they recognize, yes, there's a problem, and they recognize the problem was a direct result of the people falling away from God and turning away from God. So they were right that, that way. And they were also correct in assuming that the answer is we need to get back to God. 
they were correct in that as well. So those are good things, wouldn't you say? Honestly, I, I see this even within the conservative movement in our country, in politics, where they, they realize, man, our, our major universities are breeding grounds of liberalism and insanity, and, and the public education system has gone off the rails completely. Now, we saw it coming, but it's really nuts now. I mean, completely nuts. Where, where kids are wanting to change into the opposite sex and the schools are keeping it hidden from the parents. And when the parents cause an uproar and they approach the school board meetings, some of them are being viewed by, as, as almost terrorists and with disdain. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're taxpayers. We're putting money towards us. Parents have every right to be upset of what's going on. So, so we see these things happening, and so what we're saying is we need to get back to morality in our country, and that is correct. But this is the, this is the danger of Phariseeism. Without a person being born again, without a revival happening in our country, a spiritual revival, we're just putting a Band-Aid on something that eventually the dam's going to break. And, and it's already at the, at the breaking point right now. Culturally, I'm speaking here in America. It's kind of like that with the Pharisees. So remember, here were a group of people who were absolutely, um, very zealous in obeying God. They had this zeal for, for God. Uh, remember the Old Testament spells out in great detail God's judgments on Israel. Uh, God told his people what would happen if they disobeyed his word. And the, remember Mount Garrison, Mount Ebal, blessings, cursings, all right? If you, if you obey, I will bless you this way and this way and this. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And so, and so they were correct in recognizing, hey, our nation has been in bondage to, to these Gentile heathen because we have rebelled against God. So, so we see this. So the Pharisees too, they were strict separatists. The very name Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word, which means to separate. And no one knows for sure how they got their name, but one thing is for sure, it fit. They were people who prided themselves on being separate from the rest of the culture at that time. They, uh, the Pharisees were committed to clean living. That's commendable. Uh, they tried to live holy lives. That's commendable. They were determined to resist the corrupting influences of the pagan Gentile society that was happening to a group of Jews called Hellenists who linked up with Antiochus Epiphanes and they gained control of the temple and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes needed more money for his military ventures. And so he saw, oh, I've got some willing allies with the Hellenists here. I can get tax money from the temple. There's a source of money. Some things never change in government, do they? <laughs> Always looking for something, right? They don't let rain into spending. They're just looking for 
more pockets to pick, right? Anyway, that's another story. So, so something else to consider before you totally write off the, the, the Pharisees. Think on this, folks. You can read the entire Bible, especially the New Testament, and you will not find one Sadducee that came to faith in Christ. The Sadducees were liberals. The Pharisees were conservative. The Pharisees looked at the scriptures as being God's word. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Pharisees believed in a physical resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, nope, they did not believe in a physical resurrection. They were the liberals of Judaism of that day. And as a result, again, I may be wrong, but I've never found even a hint of a Sadducee coming to faith in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that tell us that the Pharisees, there's something they did right to an extent? Oh, they were blinding people too. And I'm not saying they were good guys, but I'm saying there was something there. Now I'm saying this because I was raised Roman Catholic. With the name Mussarino, you're predestined to be a Roman Catholic, right? It's just gonna come with the territory, right? Just like if your name is Weinstein or you know, Jewish name, you're going to be Jewish, right? Raised in Judaism. So anyway, the interesting thing about Roman Catholicism, though, is it was instilled in me that the Bible was the word of God, that Jesus was virgin born, that, that Jesus performed miracles, and they were genuine miracles, all right? And, and it really, they were very good at making you feel guilty and sinful, they're very good at that. But you know, the interesting thing is, you know, liberal Protestants deny the virgin birth of Christ. Some of them deny the deity of Christ. They deny the inerrancy of scriptures. You don't find that within Catholicism. Now I'm saying it's so broad, you will find Catholics, but that's not the official dogma of the Catholic church. And yet, I am not pro-Catholic. So please, don't, don't think that I am, not at all. But what I am saying is that there's a lot of similarities between the Pharisees and Catholics today because they do have a high view, at least the, 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 the church itself, their dogma, does have a high view of the scriptures. They do have a high view of sin. They do have a high view of, of miracles in the Bible, that they really are supernatural interventions of God. That's true. That's biblical. Oh, they, they believe in the Trinity. That's good, right? So, so there's those good things, and yet that's what makes it so dangerous. When I uh, first became a Christian, there was a friend of mine named Ray McKee. He worked at a bank. He told me when he first started at the bank, he was trained in to be a teller. And he said, you know, the interesting thing, Jim, is uh, one of the things as a teller, you're handling cash all the time. And so before I ever even worked as a teller, we were trained to recognize the genuineness of real currency. He said, they did not take time to show us counterfeit. Instead, they said, this is what real money looks like, feels like, all of these things, the, the colors of the threads, all of that. And he said, the reason why they did that is because there's lots of counterfeits coming along. 
And if they just show you one counterfeit, well, there could be another one that's even better. And it can get by you. What they wanted us to know is the real thing so that we could spot any counterfeit. And I really think that is true, too, about, about our faith. And that is that we need to be so grounded in the truth that when error comes along, we, we may not be able to put a thumb on it or a finger on it right away, but we know something's not right here. Well, the Pharisees had a lot of good things, but they also had a lot of wrong things, and that's what makes it so dangerous. Something that is so close to the truth, and yet it's a counterfeit, still leads people to hell. So, But getting back to the danger that I feel that I could slip into, not being a communist, not being pro-abortion, I don't worry about that, but that Pharisee thing, you know why? Because it's a work of the flesh. It says, I am a pretty holy person. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not saying we should go around beating ourselves over the head and, and call us, you know, just, oh, I'm just this worthless worm. Don't you love it when people say that, though? You know what you should say to that person? You're right, you are. And watch the reaction. Oh, I am not, you know. They, they, just, they just want a pat on the back, right? Anyway, it's just kind of funny. I did that one time to a guy, and he didn't like that a whole lot. But anyway, <laughs> look at this. Acts chapter 26, verse 5. We read this. The Apostle Paul, again, which knew nothing of me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. What was Paul before he got saved? He was a, not a Sadducee, he's a Pharisee, a strict Pharisee who had a high regard of Scripture. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't able to put it together until he got saved, but all of that that he had inculcated in him since a child, that's why he was such a brilliant man. He had so much, I mean, he trained under one of the chief rabbis, Gamaliel. So he had a lot of stuff, but he just... He was blind in his sin still. He wasn't illuminated by the Spirit of God, so he didn't put it all together. But when he finally got saved, it's like, whoa, it all came together for him. But he had it instilled in him. It was there. He just needed to get saved. And boy, did he become a dynamic servant of the Lord? You better believe it. How about this? Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles except thou doest, except God be with him. Nicodemus got saved then down the road. How about a guy named Joseph of Arimathea? He got saved. Look at this, Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, it says, but there arose up a certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, but they also said that it was needful for the Gentiles to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They were wrong there. So they were still holding on 
to some of their influences as being raised up and being Pharisees. And I do believe it says they believed. So I believe they were regenerate. I do believe they were born again, but they were holding on to these false teachings still. By the way, that should be a very important lesson, those of us who've come out of a background, a religious background. Um, folks, if it's not in the Bible, let go of it. Honestly, don't, don't hold yourself back. Listen, we need the truth more than anything. So the Pharisees were people of the book. And by the book, I mean they had extreme high regard for the Bible. They recognized the authority of the scriptures. They saw the hope of the future of Israel as depending on whether God's word was honored and obeyed. And because of this recognition, the Pharisees, they, they saw the role as being a leader and an educator to the unlearned in the things of God. So they took it upon themselves because they realized this is what our people need. They need God's word. And they were correct. But the problem is, again, it was mixed with error. And they weren't saved themselves. So among the Jewish people, it could be honestly claimed that God's people, the Jews, this sect of all of them, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. It was the Pharisees who really were passionate in, in the things of God. Case in point, look what Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 10, or Romans 10, I'm sorry, verses one through three. Consider this. Paul, a Jew, had been a Pharisee. Now he's a, he's a born-again Christian. And here's what he writes to Christians at Rome. He writes, brethren, so he's writing to fellow Christians in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be what? Saved. Now catch this. For I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Watch this. Verse three, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. See, that's what the danger of self-righteousness. Now think about this, folks. So the Pharisees believed in the right God. Is that not true? They didn't believe in Buddha. They didn't believe in Allah. They believed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they believed in the right God, and yet they still needed to be saved. They believed the Bible was God's word. And Paul says they even have a zeal for God, and yet they still needed to be saved. Doesn't that tell you something? That religion does not get you to heaven. No matter how sincere, you can have a zeal for God. You can even believe in the right God. That's, that's what I was. Roman Catholic, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. I believed in the supernatural work of God. And I was not saved. Why? Right here. Because I thought that I could make myself righteous by being a faithful Catholic. That's the danger of a Pharisee. But when it comes to being a Christian, 
it manifests itself in this way, a critical, judgmental spirit. It manifests itself in examining others and seeing their flaws while never looking at yourself. That's the flare-up that can happen in you and I. And that's wrong too. Now there's this other extreme called antinomianism, which means lawlessness. And that's also among grace-preaching churches where, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. I'm not saved by my works. I'm going to heaven. I have that free gift. And that's true. But folks, it does matter how you live. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all the New Testament epistles, the Pauline epistles that were often correcting Christians in their corrupt lifestyle. And he's calling them to holiness, not to get themselves saved, not to make themselves more spiritual, but to be free so you can serve Christ. Because God wants to use a clean vessel. How many of you, if you went over to a person's house for dinner and you walk into the house and you notice in the kitchen area, in the sink, there's all these dirty plates. And they're all full of, you know, obviously they had been eaten off of before and there's crust on them and maybe a little bit of green mold on some of the plates. How many of you would love it if the person that you're going over to their home and they were saying, oh, I'm so glad you came over for dinner and let me set the table before we eat. And so they go over to the sink and they start pulling out these dirty plates and dirty forks and knives and spoons and they set it and they place it all properly on the table. <clears throat> and you're seeing stuck macaroni and cheese, a little bit of broccoli, little remnants of that, a little bit of spaghetti sauce, a little bit of blood from the steak. How many of you would love to eat off that plate? You got lipstick around the rim of the cup, and they pour water in there or whatever you ask to drink. Milk, you know, you see milk, and it really makes that lipstick stand out on the edge of the cup. How many of you would love to drink out of that cup? Of course we wouldn't. Why not? Well, it's obvious. It's dirty. Why do we expect God to use us if we're dirty? So it's not about legalism. We need to be a pure people, holy, fit for the master's use. Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us that if we want to be used. So that's what it comes down to. But here, the Pharisee in us is, see, I made myself righteous. See, I'm a spiritual person. That's self-pride, that's arrogance, that's self-righteousness. And yes, it can happen in a Christian. It can happen in me. It's happened before where I get a critical, judgmental spirit. Here's the thing. When we see somebody who's got issues, they're in sin, we shouldn't ignore it. We should love them enough to, to, to confront them. But what does Jesus teach? We're to first examine ourselves. He talks about doing some spiritual lumberjacking first. He says, how are you going to try and get the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a beam in your eye? And then what does he say after that? First, get rid of the beam in your own eye. 
then you'll be able to get the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's saying, yes, you need to talk to your brother, but you better do some spiritual lumberjacking first. Why? Because what does that do? It causes you to humble yourself so that when you're in that right state of mind, now you can really help a person attack their sin problem. You don't attack them. You're not condescending toward them. You have compassion for them to pull them out of that pit of sinful lifestyle that they're in. It caused, it's called compassion. It's called real love. And if that's missing, guess what? We have a Pharisee flare-up happening in us. And that's not helpful for the cause of Christ. And it turns people off. And a Christian, especially who's struggling in sin, it just pushes them away more. And then they don't get the help that they need and that they deserve. So that's the concern. That's the thing I talk about tonight. Because sound teaching, we can stay the course on that. But when it comes down to this, how to treat my fellow man, it really comes down to the simplicity of loving God, and loving our fellow man. These are the first two commandments. Jesus said, all the the law and the prophets hinge upon. Because when you really love God, then you will love your fellow man. And when you love your fellow man, you'll respond to them in the correct manner. Because this is all about helping people, not looking down on people, right? As I close... Over the years, I've, I've had to learn some things myself. And I, I've, all, I've, I've made this, this determination years ago where I just want to be teachable. Not gullible, but teachable. Because I, I look, even Moses and Abraham learned some of their most important lessons later on in life. So I want to be that way. I want to be that way until the Lord takes me home. I want to be teachable. And, and so with that in mind... I've had to learn to realize I've gotten to the place where I'm so tired of Satan getting Christians and ruining their lives. And, and, and they, they go into sin, whether they choose to or they're overtaken by sin, whatever it may be, but they're in sin. They're in bondage. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, that sin brings forth death, James chapter one tells us, right? And, and I used to just kind of, the Pharisee in me, dismiss them. Now, I'm tired of Satan getting God's people, taking them down. I want to see these people get things right with God. I can't make it happen, but I really want it to happen. What a trophy of grace, right? To see people who've been messed up even though they, they were Christians and they should have known better, I really want to see them get right with God, to the glory of God. Because again, the enemy is Satan, not these sinning brothers and sisters. I'm not defending sin. I'm just saying it's easy for us to just dismiss, but if God brings them into our life, man, he brought them there for a reason. That's why I love our our ministry to reaching people who struggle with addictions. 
And that really has helped me in dealing with other areas of, of Christian life. And I'm grateful for that. So I, I, I just share that with you. And in closing, if you're here tonight and, and this is all kind of new to you, or, or maybe you've been here a few times and you're kind of checking things out. This is a little bit new. I remember it took some time for me to come to realize I'm not a Christian. I need, I need, I want to go to heaven. What must I do to be saved, basically, is what I was asking. But it took time because it was so different and yet similar to what I had been raised in. And, and so I had to mull that over my mind. If that describes you, I, I want to just throw this out. And, and I know if you've ever come to the church, you've heard this. But how about it? If you were to die and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Here's the reality. The Bible says this hand representing you and me represents that God loves us. This represents us. This wallet represents sin. Understand this. God loves you. He does not hate you. It doesn't matter what you've done. You need to understand what Jesus has done. He loves you. But you're a sinner just, by the way, so am I. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, here's something else. God is a loving God, but he's also a just God, and he has to punish sin. If he doesn't, he's, he's not a righteous God. And if he's not a righteous God, then he's really not a loving God. I'm glad that there's justice one day. People get away with stuff in this life, but ultimately they will not. You know why? Because praise God, there is supreme justice. The problem is God's no respecter of persons. And he says in Romans 6.23 that the wages or the payment for sin is death. The payment for sin is not baptism. The payment for sin is not going to church. Those have their role, but those, that's not what's going to take, take care of your sin problem. There's only one thing that will take care of that. Again, the wages or the payment for sin is death. So if we die, we will have to pay that penalty and we can never fully pay that off. That's why we will spend eternity in hell. But God loves us. He wants us in heaven. So what did he do? This hand reverently represents Christ. And the Bible says of Jesus that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Question, when did that happen? When he died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Not because of sin he committed. Because of the sin you and I committed. He paid that debt. And to prove he paid for all your sins is on the third day he rose from the dead. And the Bible says if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is dead, it's waste, and you're still in your sin. But he did rise from the dead and become the first fruits of the resurrection. So here's the difference. Tonight, you may have come here and you have faith. I think that's safe to assume because you wouldn't have come to a church thing. But I ask you, do you have saving faith? Do you have the faith like Paul talked about? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. They believe in the right God. They have a zeal for God, but they need to be saved. Does that describe you? Or do you have saving faith? What's saving faith? It's when you realize, man, I'm a sinner. I know God loves me, but I know I'm a sinner. And the wages of my sin is death. Now here's saving faith. I need a savior. I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who is without sin and that he died on the cross for me. 
He paid for all my sins. He proved it by rising from the dead. And I am choosing to place my faith in him to save me. Does that describe you tonight? Have you put your trust in Christ to save you?